Hi, I'm Mansur Bahrami and you're listening to Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 49 of the Functional Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with Head, who makes some awesome tennis rackets. I'm Fabio Molly, your host. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you've been here before, hi. Hope you're doing well. So this week, I'm really excited to have an episode with Mansour Barami. I'm sure you've heard of him or seen his videos or seen some of his crazy shots that won the Grand Slams or Legends or Champions Tour. He is the guy that you'll see hitting like running backwards smashes, tweeners. He's always entertaining crowds. He's known as a master and a genius to his peers. And he has a great story. He always wanted to play tennis as a young kid. In his home country, in Iran, tennis was seen as a Western sport and was banned. The most he could do as a young kid was be a ball boy at a tennis club. But he always found different utensils to use to try and hit tennis balls. And that's where he built up. And eventually got a chance to play only 60 seconds later to be kicked off the court and beaten up by a guard. Finally, country recognized his love and passion and skill of the game. And he was allowed to play tennis and eventually made the Davis Cup team as a 16-year-old. Only then a few years later, tennis to be banned again. So eventually he found a way to escape Iran onto France. And there he found more difficulties and challenges and more exciting stories until he eventually made it after his 30s onto the tour and he got to travel a bit more. It's really a fantastic episode with many great stories. I really hope you enjoy part one and come back for part two next week. Finally, we are giving away a copy of Mansour Barami's book, The Court Jester. All you have to do is leave a comment saying how much you enjoyed the episode under our latest Instagram account post over at Functional Tennis Podcast and we'll announce the winner in a few weeks. Okay, enough of me. Let's start talking to Mansoor. Hi, Mansoor Barami. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here. How are you doing? How's confinement? I'm very lucky. I have a little garden so I can, you know, go out a little bit, exercise to do whatever it's uh, possible to do when you are, you know, confined and then locked down. So uh, it's going pretty good. It's been 60 days though. I'm not, I'm not, I have not been out. 60 days. Wow. When do you think you'll enter stage, the next stage? Well, the next uh, thing is the 11th of May in a couple of three, four days. We are allowed to go out within 100 kilometers from where we live. And, uh, but, you know, going out really, if I cannot play tennis, uh, going out to do what? Everything is closed. Uh, the bars, restaurants, cinemas, theaters, everything is closed, except uh, the ordinary shops and everything. I don't need to go buy clothes or everything. So I would definitely go out, but not for long. So it's not going to change. It's not going to change. Unfortunately, tennis-wise, it's, it's all, uh, everything is, is canceled for the whole year. I had a pretty good... Uh, schedule for this year but uh, now 
like 90, 98% is, is cancelled. So Yeah, that's terrible. And you're in Paris. Where would you normally play tennis? Where would you practice? Every day that I practice, is it's in uh, Roland Garros Stadium. That's where I, I practice, which is a national tennis center there. It's only open with for the uh, people, for the players uh, who are the top French players and uh, uh, the top juniors who are trained by uh, under the French Federation. And uh, I'm lucky they accept me too to go and practice there, which is very nice and kind from them. Well, you are a Grand Slam finalist there, aren't you? Yes, absolutely. That is, uh, that is one of my best results. Uh, I'm proud of that because uh, my best years, which the best year of a, a sportsman is between 20 to, to 30 years of age. But uh, me from uh, uh, age, uh, almost age 20, 21 till age 30, I couldn't play and I t- couldn't compete in the um, professional tour because, you know, you had to travel around. And me, with my Iranian passport, I was not allowed to go anywhere. Even now, I cannot go anywhere with Iranian passport except in Iran. So, yeah, I lost uh, my best years not playing professional tennis. And I played, uh, yeah, when I was 30 years old, the things began to ease down and everything, and then with the French nationality, then it was easier to go out, but I was already too old. So that's why maybe my uh, best results is uh, a French Open final when I was uh, 33 years old already. Roger Federer wouldn't agree with you now. Roger Federer <laughs> wouldn't agree. Uh, Roger Federer, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm a fan of Roger Federer. He's a... I think he appreciates me. I I very admire of uh, his work. He I met him when he was eleven years old. Yeah, but he he is an exceptional. I know. But if he couldn't play from age twenty to thirty, if he was uh, condemned to stay in in Basel from age twenty to thirty. I don't think he could do what he did. No, no, I completely agree with you. And I'm very happy for him. He's a free man and he can do all what he's done. Well, let's talk about the early days. Before we do that, where did you meet Roger Federer as an 11-year-old? Roger Federer told me in 2005. I remember in uh, 1992, I played in Basel. I played an exhibition match there with uh, Jimmy Connors. And in 2005, he was... On a Friday, second Friday of the Wimbledon, he was uh, playing against uh, his semi-final against Sebastian Grosjean. And I was playing in the senior uh, tournament there. That Friday uh, of the 2005 Wimbledon, second Friday, it was a horrible day. All day we played only one set. You know, that's nothing. Could, it rained, it stopped, it rained, it stopped, it rained. And we were going together. He was going to the center court and I was going to my court to play my match every time together out and in the, the locker room. And he said to me, uh, after three, four times we're going out, he says, Mansur, you remember you played in 92 with uh, Jimmy Connors? I said, yeah, sure, of course. He says, you remember you played with me? I said, well, I remember I played with a kid, which was pretty good, but I no, I didn't know it was you. He said, it was me, Mansoor, and I have a, a photo that uh, I'm in the middle of Jimmy Connors and you, and I hit some balls with you guys. You guys were 
nice and you hit some balls to me. And, uh, and he asked me if I want that photo. And I said, I would be very, very happy to have that photo. So a couple of weeks later, we saw us, I don't know where, and then he gave it to me, and, uh, which was very kind and nice of him. He's a, he's a nice man. And so I used that photo for I, three, three months later. My book came out, and, and it was in there. And he did a book, which is called Number One, and he put that uh, photo in there with the story of that, uh, that photo. You know, actually, now I remember the photo where it is you and Connors and him in the middle. That's been doing the rounds on social media for a while now. I completely forgot about that. That's it's a nice photo. It's a nice picture, uh, and you can see Federer is unbelievable. His smile, his face is, is not much changed. He's still the same. It's it's great. Yeah, no, nothing's changed. And you mentioned your book. I only came across your book yesterday, The Courchester. Yes. I ordered it yesterday, so I'm looking forward to reading it. And we're going to give one away to one of our listeners here. So stay tuned till the end and I'll tell them how to enter. So looking forward to reading that. Yeah, it's a very interesting book, really. I'm very happy people to, to read that. It's, it's easy reading and it's very nice. And OK, so let's take it back to the early days when you first came across tennis. When was that? I was uh, four or five years old and my father was a gardener in working in the in the biggest sport complex, which uh, was called Amjadie Stadium, that was in Tehran. And that was uh, almost the only place that we had tennis court. So, you know, tennis was a new sport and, and uh, mainly for the rich people. So I start, you know, looking around. We had a very small room, which was like two uh, meters underground. And that was given to us by the director of the stadium. And uh, there were other people who were working in the stadium. They were in the same situation as us. They had a small room. You know, we were a family of uh, six, uh, seven, sometimes eight people, you know. So we had this small room, which was like uh, 120 square feet. And uh, I was there with my brothers and sister and my parents. That was our house, our living room, bedroom, everything. And so... I start working around and seeing the basketball, volleyball, football, every sport that you can imagine. And so it was no problem. But every time I went to the tennis courts, they were kicking me uh, my butt and asking me to go out. So uh, that's why I just said, why am I not allowed to play? And they said, you're not allowed to come here. This is for, the, you know, reserved for the people and you cannot... Uh, so that made me mad and, and, and much more keen to wanting to be a, a, a sports, a tennis player. Any other sport, there was no problem, but tennis was a problem for me to, to play. So I said, well, you don't want me here. I want to be here. So I kept coming back. And after a while, they said, okay, listen, man, you can come here just as a ball boy. You can ball boy for the people, but you're not allowed to go to the tennis courts to play. So uh, I said, that's fine, you know, and so I, I was working there from five in the morning uh, till eight and then I would go to school and then at four o'clock in the afternoon, I come back and go ball boying for people until seven, eight at night. And uh, that would be like, there was a, a rate for that. I was getting 10 cents per hour ball boying for people, just picking up the balls because people were lazy, they didn't want to pick up their balls so they could pay. 
And uh, that was, I, I did that from age five to age 13, you know, and uh, just looking at how the people play tennis and I was learning from them. And uh, if I was making a little bit of money, which was good, I was trying to uh, thinking that I'm helping my father because my father was making uh, uh, like uh, one pound a day working, you know, like 30 pounds per month. So that was one of the reasons I never asked my father to uh, buy me a racket or something because then you had to pay 200 uh, pounds to for, for buy a racket. So I played against the wall. The best place I was, uh, I was loving it was uh, the... We had three swimming pools there, one for the champions, uh, you know, the, the international uh, tournaments of swimming, one for the kids and one open for the public to come in and they were paying like 20 cents to come all day, stay in the busy swimming pool. And so the best moment for me was when uh, in the end of the autumn, when the tennis was, uh, the weather was bad, and the swimming pool was empty, I would go in the bottom of the swimming pool and hit against the wall with a dustpan or with a piece of wood that I would find on the floor. And I would stay there and, and play hours, two, three hours, four hours. I would, just loving it, hit against the wall with a dustpan or frying pan, whatever I could use as a, sometimes just with the palm of my hand. You know, and uh, that's how I uh, I learned tennis. Wow! And we actually we have a question from one of our guests called Amir Lee, who lives in Princeton, New Jersey, and he's actually from Tehran originally. Hi, Mansoor. Uh, my name is Amir Ali. I live in Princeton, New Jersey. But just like you, I grew up in Tehran. I also played tennis and you've always been a huge role model for me. Uh, I'm thankful to Functional Tennis for organizing this podcast, which I'm very much looking forward to. I was hoping if you could share some of your memories from the time you were in Iran playing tennis. Where did you practice? How many hours a day did you practice? Who were some of the people who influenced you? And were you doing your trick shots even back then? Or is that something that happened later in your career? Anything you can share, I'm sure would be appreciated by, certainly by me, but most likely by many others. Many thanks. You know, tennis for me, it was a, it's a game. It, uh, I didn't play tennis to become rich because there was no prize money when I, 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 I played. It was just because they didn't want me to play, I wanted to play tennis. So the, the trick shot was, I tell you something about these trick shots. The people sometimes, they ask you, how did you learn or, or this? I have never had a tennis coach in my life. I, everything I do on tennis court, I just learned myself. And when I was six, seven, eight years, nine years old, there were other kids, ball boys, who were exactly in the same situation as I was. They were not allowed to go to the tennis courts too. They were ball boying for the people too. Sometimes we had these nice people, they would give you 10 cents or, or 20 cents for an hour of... There was this guy, he was giving you only 2 cents, you know, and 2 cents. But as soon as he brings his face in the, in the te tennis, all the ball boys were running away and hiding. And, you know, 
we were hiding because nobody wanted to ball boy for this guy. And uh, so director, he knew where we were hiding. So, you know, it was, uh, so he would, the first uh, ball boy he would pick, he said, okay, you go and uh, we would say, the guy is paying only two cents, you know, so I can't. He says, you just shut up and go and, and ball boy. So we had to do that. So coming back to your question, tennis is just a game. It was just, uh, we were playing sometimes with my friends out of the tennis courts. We would go and find a, a piece of uh, a rope or something to make a net ourselves and put uh, with cast on the floor, do the lines. And, and play with uh, me with a dustpan, my partner with a piece of wood. And we just try to do all this, hit the ball between our legs, behind our head, uh, back to the net. And, uh, and we were just having fun. And this state, no one ever, you know, I never had a coach, as I said earlier. No one ever told me, Mansu, you cannot do this, you know, let's say you want to become a tennis player. You have to play for every, every, every point. Uh, you're not allowed to do this. So this is a for me. And I remember when I was then a little bit older, when I was 12, 10, 11, I was hitting against the wall and I was doing all this, this stuff. And some people would just cross and pass and they would just stay there and for like half an hour and they say, wow, how do you do this? And I was just surprised that they're asking me because I didn't think I'm doing anything special. But then when I, you know, I start playing, you know, later on, when they allowed me to, to play. So I was doing this and then the crowd loved it and me too. So, you know, but uh, it wasn't very easy. It was actually very, very hard in the beginning. Were you 13 when you actually got a tennis racket and could play Legally, let's say. Well, uh, my, my first racket is when I was 12 years old. I had uh, this guy who was like kind of my idol. I was ball boying for him. He was giving tennis lessons. And at the same time, he was one of the best Iranian tennis players. His name is Shirzad Akbari. He's still, uh, he's like, t t he's 75 today. You know, I saw him two months ago. When I went to visit my family, I saw him in Tehran. We had uh, uh, dinner together and, you know, I, I talked to him every now and then. So I was ball going for him and I would send, you know, the ball with different uh, spin on it to him and he would just go to grab the ball and the brim. The ball would spin differently and sometimes he was... And he, he liked me very much, uh, you know, and uh, I liked him. He knew that I was a fan of him. And uh, one day he said, Mansur, okay, I'm going to give you a, a good gift if you keep sending me the balls, you know, right balls and no, no spin and nothing. So I said, okay, I tried to be a, a good ball boy then. And uh, he was giving his lessons and I worked, I don't know, seven, eight hours for him. And uh, after the end of the end of the day, he gave me a, a, a racket. He says, Mansur, here, I know how much you love to have a racket. Here, I'll give you a racket. That was the first racket I, I ever had. And uh, it was such a, a great moment for me. And I just couldn't sleep. I, had, I bought another racket, you know, and I stringed myself with the strings that I had found in the, the pro shop there. 
and I did it myself, and it was really something inimaginable. It was something impossible to play with. But I <laughs> came to the tennis with two two rackets, and I, I'm like dreaming about Wimbledon, Roland Garros, you know, and and like I'm walking like these great players, and. Uh, one of my friends said, Masu, let's go play. There's nobody here. It was an August day, like it was 45 degrees, really 45 degrees. You, it would be very, very hot. People at that time of the year, they just stop working and uh, everything. They stop and they just go home and they have lunch and then they have siesta until 4 or 5 when it's cooling down. And then they come out and to uh, continue the life. And so... We went to the tennis court, uh, both of us. He was allowed to play, I was not. It was like one in the afternoon. We had 13 courts there. All the courts were empty. So I said, it's great. I'm so happy to go to the court. And I just imagining in my head that I am going to play the final of uh, French Open or final of Wimbledon. And I come to the court and we hit for like maybe 30, 40, maybe one minute. And so after one minute, I see myself surrounded by by the guards and, and uh, I can't run away. It's, I'm just trapped. And uh, and one of these guys stops me and, and he grabs me and he, he hit me six, seven times on the floor. I swear to God, I think that, okay, I'm going to die today. This is my last day of my, my, my life. And I can't move anymore. I'm bleeding all over and the floor is big, blood all over. And, and I see the guy going towards my rockets. And I said, I said, please don't touch my rockets. Leave my rockets alone. The guy he gave me a very nasty, bad look. And he just, he put the rockets on the, on the step. And he smashed it with his foot and he broke them in two. And that was the, um, the first memory of my first racket. Okay, not good. One of the tennis players that is, is a friend, you know, this is the same. Another guy who was in the national team, his name was Ezat Nemati. He helped me, took me home. And my brother my older brother, who is also now 75 years old, and he saw me and can, he, he went crazy. And because like 10 years before that, they did the same thing to him. They didn't allow him to play and he wanted to play. And But, uh, you know, he after years, so he didn't play tennis. But he was a very big help, my brother, for me. And so he came and he said, who's done this to you? And my, uh, this guy who took me to my brother said, it's Ali Reza who's done this. So he knew Ali Reza. He came back there and he just went to the tennis court and the guy was there and he just punched him three, four times <laughs> in his mouth and it was just three, four uh, tooth were gone. <laughs> Brilliant. And the people came in, yeah. And uh, people came in and they said, yeah, they shouldn't have done this with these kids. And I uh, really, I cannot believe uh, what he did and how a 40-year-old man can uh, can do this to a 10, 12-years-old kid. You know, it was just not uh, fair. Uh, it's just, this guy is so much stronger than me. So 
but that was uh, that was the story, and uh, it was a little bit. I was a little bit um, compensated when I saw my brother, you know, kicked his butt. And yeah. He said he said you guys didn't. He told the guy he says you guys didn't let me play. So you know, my brother then was twenty two years old, and he says if you touch once more my brother, if anybody here touch my brother once like this, I kill him. You know. I destroy you if you touch my brother again. So, yeah, that was the story of my my wow. first racket. And then, you know, the months and weeks are gone. And then, like, one year later, I have to tell you that we didn't have all the program and uh, infrastructures that you have in, like, in Europe, uh, in England, in France, in Germany. The guys who played, for example, for our national team, like my idol, like these other guys who are playing for whom I was ball playing, they were in the same situation as me 10, 12 years earlier. They were all ball boys, you know. Okay. So now I'm 13 and the Federation needs the new uh, generation to come up because the generation before me was just getting a little bit older. So they come to me and they gave me two rackets and they said, Mansur, you know, here is two rackets. From now on, you can just go and make your reservation and play as much as you want, as long as you want, anytime you have priority on everyone else. So wow. uh, th that's why I, I had really my first racket then. Two brand new rackets, strong in the professional, I mean, not professional, looks as 13, but in a good way. Yeah. And for me, I went, just went to the court and I, I'm hitting the ball. It's like uh, I'm, I'm beating already the people who are playing for the past two, 10, 15 years, you know. So it was much easier once uh, you have a real racket than, uh, you know. Than a frying pan. <laughs> dustpan or, or a frying pan or yeah it was much easier and i all these uh, trick shots and everything i was doing i was 13 14 everything that i do today when you see me playing the wimbledon or french open or australia in, I, I do in the court this i was doing when i was 12 13 14 all of them you know as good as i'm doing yeah so that's uh, it's just because i never had a coach and one day my friend Yannick Noah was uh, interviewed and the subject of interview was me. The journalist told him, Yannick, what do you think about Mansour? Because I played so many exhibitions with Yannick, you know, and he's a very good friend of mine. And uh, they told him, what do you think about Mansour never had a coach? What would have been if he had a coach or something? And Yannick said, you know what, I think... I'm very happy that he never had a coach because had he, he a coach, he would be another boring player like, uh, you know, some players, you know. So he says, I'm very happy that he didn't have a, uh, a coach. And I, to be honest, I really think, uh, yeah, I'm happy I never had a coach either because I, I'm very happy. People tell me every day uh, when I'm playing somewhere, they just... They say thank you, and then they said we had good time. And when I see the smile in their face, uh, my day is made, you know, and it's a good day for me. And, and uh, that is more important for me than uh, you know. If yeah, I'm happy to to gain money to for that, but seeing the smile in people's face is is much more important for me.
Yeah, really, it's it's a bit like you're an exhibitionist. That is your job. I even think top athletes, the top tennis players, it's their job to entertain. That's what they're really, I know they're there to win and collect big prize money. But ultimately, when you have a big stage like that, you are there to entertain a crowd and everybody has their own way to entertain the crowd. So I think you've done an amazing job. And then, as I said before, before this, anytime we put up one of your videos, people absolutely love it. Your fan base worldwide is amazing. So yeah, you definitely put a lot of smiles on a lot of faces. Yeah, thanks. I'm not cheating. I'm doing, I'm not faking. All I'm doing, I have great time when I'm in the tennis court. To be honest, if I'm on the tennis court, you know, when I'm practicing... That's the only time in in my whole day. That's the only time I'm just hitting solid balls without doing any trick shots or anything. You cannot find one, not one, one person saying that, yeah, I have seen Mansour, for example, practicing the, the betweener or the back, uh, uh, his back to the net and... Uh, overhead or the, the, the backspin drum. You cannot find one person because I've never practiced those shots. Those shots, I only do it extensively in when I'm on the court. And when there is a good crowd, I love to do that. If there is nobody watching, I just don't feel like doing any... It's not entertainment for me. Yeah. If there is nobody, I don't want to be on the court. So you won't be playing any behind closed doors, tennis exhibition matches? No, 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 I won't. No, no, no. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever. Get the new Cord FF3 Novak or Gel Resolution 9 at ASICS.com. ASICS Tennis have also just launched their new Cord FF3 Novak, the only tennis shoe designed with Novak Djokovic input. To learn more about ASICS, visit their website www.asics.com. And tell me, so at 16 you played Davis Cup? Yes. So that must have been unbelievable. Well, I, I, I played at 13. Uh, I started playing 13 and when I was 16, I was uh, you know, three, four years later, I was the top three, four in, in Iran. Yeah, we started to play at 16 and then uh, at uh, 17, uh, 18, there were some people who were uh, really, for me, great people that I'm still in contact with one who is still alive and I love him and I talk to him every week. If it's not every uh, three times a week, it's at least once a week. I still talk to him. He lives in New York. And uh, these people, they, they came in and they said, well, we want, you know, two, three, four players one of them was me, that we want you to go and play the ATP tournaments and uh, we pay for everything and we don't want you to stay here and waste your time giving lessons to to the ordinary people. Or so. so I started going out and, and playing in 76, 78, uh, 79, and then 79, beginning 79, everything was shut down because of the revolution in Iran and uh, my career stopped there. We, we didn't, we had a, one of the biggest tournaments in the world in Iran, in Tehran, was called Aryameh Cup. And uh, this was in October 
and just just before the Madrid tournament, I think the 1977 was the last time we had that tournament, and the Shah he was helping the sport. He was trying to bring us up and and uh, in the do the best that we can be everywhere. So he was encouraging the sportsman and also tennis. But the 77 was the last time we organized that tournament. And in 78, uh, like uh, 10 days before the tournament, they canceled everything. And from then on, we didn't play tennis anymore. And then with the arrival of uh, Islamic Republic, uh, everything was officially forbidden. And so I stayed for like three years, three years and a half, not hitting one ball. And then, uh, and then, uh, I was very lucky somehow. I, we, after three years not, not hitting one ball, we were every day begging Ministry of Sport to let us, you know, organize a tournament to play. You know, there were so many families living off tennis, you know, yeah. and they said, no, American tennis is American capitalist game. We don't want and, they tried to, to even football, everything. They tried to stop it all. Stop it all, yeah. But they did for tennis was like for four or five years. But then eventually we, you know, said we want to make a, a tennis tournament called Revolution Cup, you know. <laughs> so they finally accept. But every day, at every moment, it could, we could have the postar on, which is the, 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 the Bushi guard. Yeah, the Bushi guard. They could come any minute and say, okay, stop everything. So we were, we played that, that tournament and, uh, with really our heart beating, uh, like 300 <laughs> times a minute. And, and so, and we finished that tournament. I won the singles and doubles and they said that the, the, the winners, prize money would be a return ticket to Europe. So did I hear that you said to your girlfriend at the time, go to Europe and she told you, no, no, you go. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Wow. I uh, got the ticket. I got the ticket and, uh, and uh, I saw it was Tehran, Aten, Tehran. For us Iranians, like, you know, really, when you say in Iran, when you say you're going to Europe, Europe is, is, is London, is, is, is Paris, is Rome, is Geneva, is Frank, is Hamburg, you know, not Athens. For me, it was like I said, once again, we got, uh, how do you say, uh, uh, we got a screwed. Is yeah, that what yeah. we say? How we say? Yeah. And so they give me this ticket and then I gave it to my, my girlfriend and I said to her, you know, you know, if you want to go, if you see, if you can go and everything, go uh, in past two, two weeks, 10 days and change your mind and everything. She took the ticket and then two, three days later, she came back and she says, Mansoor, we have to find a way that you go. I'm not going to use this ticket. I have... Uh, I have done all the research and I, I know for if we go, we put $500, add $500, we can have, uh, you know, from Tehran to Nice, from Nice to Paris, Paris, Geneva, and then yeah. Tehran. So I said that, yeah, it's, it's, uh, and then she said, if, you know, I, uh, you go and if you can stay there, I'll come to join you after, but if, if no, at least you have tried. And two questions, Mansoor. One, in the three years that it took for that tournament to come alive, why did you not decide to go to Europe beforehand? Was it money or was there any other reason? 
no, no, all the borders were closed. Even though, yeah, you couldn't just leave like that. Okay. I had my visa. I had a visa uh, from 1977, November, till November 1981. American visa, four years, multiple uh, entry and everything. Mm. But my first choice would be America. But the Americans said no Iranians allowed to come to the uh, States, to United States, even those who have their valid visa. Visas are all cancelled because they had the American embassy was taken hostage by uh, Islamist uh, uh, students. So there was 52 uh, diplomats, you know, the guys who were yeah. working at the in embassy of America. They were in, they were hostage for one year. I don't know if you saw that uh, movie, Argo. I did, very uh, good movie. Yeah, that, I was in Tehran then. I was there when they left. When did that happen? I was reading and watching the news every day. And so that's why I couldn't go before. Otherwise, I would have left uh, okay. right away. Yeah. When this tennis tournament took part then, the border situation had changed, had it? No, the borders were still closed. I had the ticket, but I couldn't go. You had to have a good uh, uh, reason that they could allow you to go. So I was lucky. I was waiting there. I was very lucky. There was a man whose name was Sadeh Bot Sadeh. This man, he was like the right arm of Ayatollah Khomeini. I didn't know him personally, but I had a, I had a very good friend of mine who was in the school, primary school, until the university with this man, with the new foreign minister, Mr. Sadeh Qutsadeh. He became new foreign minister of Iran. So I said to my friend, whose name was Reza, I said, Reza, your guy, your buddy is, uh, you know, uh, foreign minister. Maybe you can help me to leave this country, I have to, I'm dying here, I have to go. My job is to play tennis and I, I have to go. I cannot play tennis here, I cannot survive. And he said, Mansur, give me your passport. I gave him my passport in two or three days time. I had the authorization to leave the country. I had visa for France and for Switzerland. Okay. And I left. Great. You must have been so happy just getting out of there. I, uh, I was I was very happy to to leave at least to try to you know because it wasn't when I left it wasn't that uh, everything was easy it was the beginning of my uh, worst times you know sometimes nothing to eat for days sometimes nowhere to sleep you know for nights and so I took my flight from Tehran at six thirty we took off and at ten thirty. I was uh, in landed in Nice, south of France. I had a, I had a, a suitcase with some, some tennis clothes and some clothes in it and what, with two rackets. And I came to the Nice airport. I couldn't speak French, so I'm speaking English with people. I'm asking people, you know, help. I'm asking things, and no one is even looking at me, you know. And I say the hell I did, I came here for. What am I going to do? I cannot speak one word. Nobody's <laughs> even looking at me. So I went to the, you know, the tourist office, you know, where you can ask, you know, uh, for hotel information and everything. Yeah. And there was a young lady and I said to her, excuse me, I'm looking for a hotel. It was a eight 
of August 1980. No that chance. place is just is just so many people. Usually, you know, in uh, Nice, you have uh, something like uh, uh, 150,000 people living there or 200,000. But then, it, this time of the year, you have 2 million, you yeah. know, so... So, and the lady laughed at me and said, yeah, 8th of August, you think I, I can make miracles? No, there's nothing. So I said, okay, well, I got off the, the airport. You know, the airport then, this is exactly 40 years ago, and it was very tiny. It was like a, the airport today is huge, but then it was like a big house. So I came out, and right away, I was on the promenade des Anglais, you know, on the beach. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I walk in the promenade des Anglais, in the street there, in the big street, which goes to Nice city. And I see on my right, I see uh, the beach, uh, all these uh, women uh, playing uh, beach volley with uh, topless and, uh, uh, you know, chest, uh, everything out. And I'm just pinching myself. I'm, I'm saying, am I dreaming? <laughs> Is this true? Many times I pinch myself. I cannot believe, you know, when you live in an atmosphere for like three years, three years and a half, you live in an atmosphere of, you know, where you see only mullahs in the, in, the, in the television and talking about Islam all the time. You forget what's, what's happening. I knew Nice. I knew France. I, that was one of the reasons I came to France and not to England. I knew England. I knew France. I knew Germany, Switzerland, Spain, uh, Italy, America. So I, went, I came to France because that was the only country after America that I could have played, you know, weekend tennis tournaments. Like mm -hmm. there are, yeah. uh, you, can, you can win like 500 euros to play one tournament, you know. I, I said I can at least, I can, you know, play tennis, even though it is not professional 100%, and make some money and survive and see what's happening, you know. So this is what happened. So I'm walking in this home, not this Anglais, and I'm walking and I'm walking and it's very hot. I have a suit on, on me and it's like 40 degrees. I'm sweating like a dog and, and I'm thinking, what am I care? What I came here to, to do? And I have 8,000 francs, which is like, uh, 1300 euros. This is all I have. 800 pounds, something like that. So it's now 1230 is like two hours later after I'm, I'm, I'm landed and I'm hungry and thirsty. So I see one of those kiosks that they're selling in the streets, sandwiches and, and ice creams and water. So I buy a glass of, bottle of water and a, a, a sandwich, the, a nice specialty sandwich, which is called pan banya. So I take one of these pan banya <laughs> and a, a bottle of water and it cost me like almost... Uh, uh, 15, 20 francs, yeah. which is like, I don't know, two pounds. And I say, two pounds to pay for this. I have only 800, you know. So how am I going to live here? Because uh, the hotel and the, the food and everything. So I, I'm really lost and thinking thousand things and walking, walking, walking. And it's like one in the afternoon and I sit in one of those blue benches which are a specialty of Nice, and my back to the sea, and in front of me on cross the street, I see Casino Rouge. Okay, interesting. So I, yeah, and I say, wow, 
this is a sign for me because with 800 pounds, there is no, nothing I can do here. I can maybe stay if I go to the cheapest hotel, if I go eat the cheapest food, uh, I can stay maybe 10 days, uh, maybe 12 days. And in 12 days, there's no way I can find a club who wants to give me a, a, a coach job or a club with, for whom I can play the, the club matches because this was this is what I was looking for. So I said in 12 years, 12 days time is not enough. So the best thing for me is just to go to casino, <laughs> uh, try to make it, uh, 30, 40,000 francs. And in this case, I can maybe stay two, three months. Longer I stay, better I have a chance to find a club. But if I lose, 10 days or one day is the same thing. So I decided to go to the casino. Interesting. And uh, 20 minutes later, I come out the casino and I have <laughs> zero cents, nothing, nothing left in my pocket. Hope you enjoyed part one of the Mansour Barami interview. I think it's amazing for him to have gone through what he had in the early days and to come through at the other side. Really hope you found it inspiring and you learned a little bit more about Mansour. I'll be back next week with the second part of this interview with Mansoor. Really looking forward to it. Hope you are too. And don't forget, check out our new Instagram account, Functional Tennis Podcast. It'd be great if you could follow us and say a quick hello. Bye.